Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of the Charter School Connection. My name is Don Wortham from Charter Connect, and in this episode I had the pleasure to speak with the CEO of Rainier Valley Leadership Academy, Bayon Coleman, along with some of her staff, Leah Reisberg and Lenny Imperato. They were fantastic. They gave such great insights. I was taking notes like crazy because almost everything that they said was gold and uh, it was it was just like they were reading out of like a, a book what full of just fantastic wise quotes. I got a lot of insights from it um, and I know that you will as well if you enjoy it just as half as much as I did then um, you're gonna have a great time with this episode. Feel free to uh, reach out to us over at Charter Connect with any questions, concerns about the podcast, about our community. Join our Facebook group, the Charter School Connection. Sign up for our newsletter and uh, reach out if you would like to be a part of our podcast. We are a growing community of charter school leaders. So the, the best way to grow charter schools is by doing it together. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Rainier Valley Leadership Academy in Seattle, Washington. RVLA, welcome to the Charter School Connection podcast. Thank you for having us today. Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited to meet with you all because with charter schools, as we know, each charter school is different. Each one is unique, um, but you guys are extra unique in some really fun ways because when I meet with charter schools and I ask, what makes you guys different? What makes you guys unique? It's typically like, oh, well, we offer this program or we do this or um, we have this machinery or this software that our students get to play. And that's all really awesome stuff. But you guys, your culture is very important. Even though I'm excited to uh, let's just start with this really quick before I even get into introducing you all. I thought it was very unique when I would mention your students. You guys said, hey, we actually don't call our students students. So what do you guys call your students at RVLA? We call our students scholars. So is, uh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, wh why? Why do you do that? Because I find that, I think that's awesome. I just found it really interesting. Yeah, so um, typically with our population of scholars um, of the global majority, we um, are not always referred to as scholars, right? We're always looked at from a deficit approach. Um, and so we never get the opportunity to actually be able to show, you know, how intellectual we actually are um, in many education spaces. So by supporting scholars, by calling them scholars, only continues to support them with being able to like represent themselves as scholars. Like if you tell a scholar that they're bad all the time, they're gonna live up to that perception of being bad. When we call them scholars, they're going to live up to that perception of being scholars. Um, and that's who they are. So that's why we call them scholars. And if you if you look at the, like what a scholar used to be, right? Let's go back in the day. <laughs> what, a scholar used to, what a scholar used to do, that was their only thing they did. Their only function was to learn and 
um, get information and be a scholar. Everybody else was working and doing things, but a scholar in the old times was somebody who that's all they did. I, I love those answers. This podcast is going to be a really awesome episode. <laughs> I'm, I love that. Thank you so much. So for those um, at home listening, we have um, Lenny, Leah, and Bayon from Rainier Valley Leadership Academy. And Bayon, let's start with you, if that's okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the charter school world and eventually RVLA. Yeah, um, so I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Um, my mother was an educator. My grandmother was an educator. Um, so I come from a les- legacy of uh, teachers, basically, and um, made it very clear coming from a family of 12, grew up right up the street from the school that we're currently um, running now, that I did not want to go into education because I did not want to be like my mother. I was like, no one needs to be working this hard. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so I was like, I'm not doing that. And I don't know very many young girls that are like, I want to be just like my mom when I get older. Right. (laughs) Um, so I was actually going to, uh, be an attorney. Um, and my thought process, because my parents were also within the juvenile detention centers, working with youth and et cetera, helping support them through education and different things. Um, I started to begin to really early on before there was like a school to prison pipeline, um, conversation happening that our youth that were in detention centers were not being educated properly in the education institutions that they were a part of. Um, And then further listening to conversations between my mom and dad, I was also able to recognize that like most folks who were actually in the prison system weren't reading at an eighth grade level. Um, So for me, there was a correlation of if I can work doing family law and supports young children who are coming through the legal system, then my thought process was instead of just sending them to jail, I would actually make sure that they were getting literacy programming. Um, So literacy was always like a really big thing in my house. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, that's going to be my contribution, but I'm not, I'm not becoming a teacher. While I was in college, I kept on like going out to schools and tutoring in different places and supporting with literacy supports. Um, And then I was at Howard University for a couple of years um, and my mother needed financial support. And so I moved back to Seattle. Um, And when I did that, I started to attend University of Washington. And at University of Washington, like I had a professor who was basically like, look, like you're going out into all these schools, you know, you're America Reads coordinator. Like, why are you going to law school? You know, and I was like, because like, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and he was, he basically just kind of posed me with a question of like, you know, do you want to do intervention or do you want to do prevention? Because um, you really need to make a choice. You know, and he was like, and everything that you're showing me right now is prevention, but you're going to go into an intervention field. Um, and I think like at that point, like I was like, all right, this guy's kind of right. So let me just go ahead and figure this out. Um, simultaneously, I also had like another uh big event happened. My mother was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer about six months after I had came back. So based off of that, like I also began to see my mother in a completely different light, right? Around like education and all the work that she did, et cetera. And so I was like, this is really someone that like, if I can be a fraction of this woman, then like, I'll be awesome. You know what I mean? Like, so I think those two things kind of simultaneously happening at the same time. And then my mother passed away. Like I had really committed myself all into education. 
Um, so I was already working in nonprofits, like teaching, et cetera. I didn't have a straight and narrow path into education by any means, because originally I was, you know, I was going to school to be an attorney. Um, so I was teaching in different places. I had a bunch of teaching pedagogy behind me just because of where I had come from, what house I was raised in, but I had never gone through a teaching program necessarily. Um, but I was teaching English. I was teaching, um, teaching debate. Um, I taught preschool all the way through eighth grade, um, in different spaces that I was in and whatnot. And eventually, um, I also began to become an administrator, but I also didn't have principal certification <laughs> either. So um, when I went to one of my schools, I was hired as um, a support for classrooms. And then I was also hired as a um, the after school program manager and then also to teach in a classroom. Um, and about six months after I was there, they were like, actually, that's not going to work. We just need you to be an administrator. So. Um, I started basically doing everything as an assistant principal. I was there for about nine years. Then I started to recognize like something's not right here. Like I'm an assistant principal, but like my pay from what I'm hearing, like my other colleagues who are making assistant principal pay or making is completely out of whack. Um, yeah. In my organization that I was in, I was the only, the only black person in the entire organization, a person of any global majority period in the organization. So there were some things that were happening that I was starting to recognize. And I was like, I gotta do something a little bit different. So then I was like, well, let me just go back and get my teaching degree. Let me go back and get my administrative certifi uh, certifications. While I was at Seattle University um, getting my admin certifications, one of the professors there had a conversation with the Washington Charter Association and they were looking for folks that they thought could be principals um, in the different charter schools around uh, around Seattle and in Washington. And the um, head of the education department at that time uh, was basically like, you don't need to wait till this one graduates. Like I have one for you right now kind of deal. And I, did, I didn't know he was having this conversation because I was like, good at my school. I was just wanted to be paid more <laughs> for the work that I, I wanted to be paid for yeah. the work that I was doing. Um, and so the Charter Association approached me, um, had a conversation, said, hey, we, you, we think you might be a really good principal to sit in these spaces. Like, would you be willing to have some conversations? I had some conversations um, and I ended up going to open on, uh, up a Washington-based CMO, um, which was Impact Public Schools. And during that process, worked with community, uh, K through five programming, built out you know, education models, social emotional learning models, et cetera. Um, really felt like we were doing the work that we needed to be doing as far as like bringing community along and, you know, hearing from community and building something based off of community. Um, and then after being there for a while, like I was like, something's askew, like there's a lot of tokenization happening. There were, <laughs> but basically seeing some things were askew and like seeing that there was a lot of tokenization that was happening um, and so I got to a point where as a community member, I felt like the folks that I was leading the school with were not actually holding the vision and mission that we had originally created together. So I had made a choice where I either am going to be complicit in this place and like completely dupe our community and put them in harm's way and be a part of the problem, or I'm going to walk away and I'm going to walk with community and try to rectify this situation to make sure that they, are, that they can still be safe in spaces. Um, and whatnot. So at that point, I was actually after 20 some years of education, I was going to walk away from education altogether. 
um, and just walk with community and like really do what I could to support um, with kind of figuring out like, what does this system look like that I help create and how do I make sure that this doesn't continue to cause harm in our community? Um, and at that point, some other community members and some elders kind of reached out and they were like, great, great timing. Like you're, you're, you've left that organization. Like we need you to come over here to Rainier Valley Leadership Academy. Um, and I was like, absolutely not. Like that's a mess over there. <laughs> no, like I'm not doing that. Like they, um, and what community explicitly was asking for was to, cause they also had a national charter um, management organization who was here. And so they were like, we need to move them out of our state altogether. And so like, we need you to come in and help kind of like clean house and reinvent what RVLA is um, as a community-based school, which was like a dream. And at the same time, like I was like, it always takes longer to clean up a mess than it does to make a mess. And like, at that point, like I was burnt out from education after 20 years of like being a black person who's sitting in spaces and is the only one in those spaces and watching the harm that's being done to youth that look like me um, really just went against the grain of why I got into education in the first place. So I was like, I'm, I'm all the way out. Like I'm going to do real estate. Like I'm good. I'm not doing it. Um, then some of the elders got involved and they were like, look, you need to hightail it over here and do what we're asking you to do. I still said no reluctantly to the elders, but I was like, nope, because y'all don't have to do what I have to do. <laughs> Um, so I still said no, and then just continued to reflect um, and just got to a point where I was like, if I don't do this, then someone else is going to do it and they're not going to do it properly for community. And we're going to have the same situation that I had to leave before. Um, and so spoke with the board, had some conversations, went through like nine different rounds of interviews to be hired here um, to make sure that I was qualified. And then um, started as their principal for the first two years, worked with community to um, re-envision what we wanted a collaborative community school to be. Um, and we all agreed that we explicitly wanted to have an anti-racist. And we all explicitly agreed that we all wanted it to be an anti-racist um, school um, that was collaborative community and really focused on scholar leadership. Um, so from that point, um, I synthesized what community wanted, recreated our vision and mission, um, supported with uh, communicating to the commission and getting our um, strategies together so that we could then move this large organization out of our state um, and became an independent um, district based off of that. Um, and that was in 2019 well before the pandemic hit. So a lot of folks were like, y'all are crazy. That language is too strong. You shouldn't be using anti-racist language, et cetera. Um, you know, you can't, you can't say, you know, like you can't say you're anti-racist. You can just say you're identity affirming um, and that type of stuff. And we were just very clear that this is explicitly who we are and we're going to be very, uh, you know, authentic to who we are. Um, and we're no longer going to um, sacrifice our comfort for the comfort of others who are actually trying to harm us. Um, then the pandemic hit and then it became that everyone was actually like, oh, now we're all anti-racist. Now we're all really focused on, you know, <laughs> you know, black and indigenous youth in spaces and whatnot. And so we had a lot of folks come back to us after that and like kind of apologize for their trying to deter us from being who we actually are, so. Okay, so that was incredible. I have so many questions. Um, I have been taking notes of my questions and you're, 
So for all the listeners and for you guys on this call right now, just know that we're not going to be able to answer all these questions that I have. We're going to have to do a round two sometime in the future because this is, man, holy cow. Um, before we move on with those questions um, for you, Bayon, um, I want to introduce Lenny and Leah so that we can have the other two characters on this call join in a little bit. And we're going to be right back to you. But before I introduce them or ask them a little bit more about themselves, that dinging, that is fantastic. That There's like a bell in the background. That is charter school all the way. I love it. That is great. School is in session. Um, and so let's start with, I don't know, let's, just, let's do um, Leah and then we'll do Lenny. Leah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the charter school world and then and I'm sure I'll be collecting a lot of questions about you and Lenny as well. I got a, a good list over here. So Leah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, let's see. I kind of like Bayon, I uh, never really intended to be in education. Um, I, after graduating, I, I got my undergrad in sociology. Um, and then I ended up going to uh, a master's program in California, San Francisco, that was like a very uh, unconventional kind of like progressive uh, school called New College of California. And it was a program called Activism and Social Change. Um, so it was like a pretty unique program. There weren't a lot like it. And that's what I was looking for. I didn't really want to go back to like a traditional school. Yeah. So I started there and um, it ended up, it, it was, a. It, the school had been around since the seventies, but uh, as we were there, a lot of things started to surface. There was a lot of corruption going on um, behind the scenes uh, that had been going on for a long time. And the administration was lying to the students about it. Um, oh, and wow. so being activists, you know, we organized and we uh, got articles written about it and we tried to um, uncover and reveal all of the corruption that was going on beyond, behind the scenes. Um, and it, the Department of Ed ended up freezing their funds and the school closed. And so uh, I was kind of left with all these like crap credits that didn't really, there is no other activism and social change program that I could like transfer my credits to. So the accreditors decided like, okay, we messed up. We shouldn't have been giving credit to this school. So what we can do is you can either do a teach out and you can really quickly uh, teach out of this program and graduate with a degree from New College of California, or you can go to another school that we accredit and try and find a program that you might like and uh, will allow you to transfer almost all of your credits into that program. Um, I didn't want a degree from that school because it was corrupt and, you know, I didn't really want to be associated with it anymore. So um, the closest thing I could find was a degree in education. So uh, I transferred my credits and I got a master's in education, but I really didn't want to be in education. So I never really... I just did it because it was like, well, what am yeah. I going to do with these, all these credits, you know? <laughs> and uh, so then um, I started to work uh, in a, uh, kind of like education 
alternative models. So like after like uh, programs that were for youth that were struggling in school, uh, nonprofits, things like that. And it got kind of a idea of like how schools work and some of the problems within the school um, and things like that. Um, and then I decided to, okay, well, that didn't really go as planned. So my friend was applying for a PhD program in education in, at UW. So I was, she was like, you should just do it. So I applied, not really thinking <laughs> I would even get accepted. Um, you know, obviously not a big planner. I just kind of go with the flow of things. <laughs> and um, I got in. So I was like, well, I guess I'll move back to Washington and start this program and see how it goes. Um, yeah. So I did. But I didn't, honestly, I didn't like it coming from the other program that was really cutting edge and really progressive. UW kind of seemed kind of conservative to me in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, and it was difficult for me to, to figure out where I fit in in that scene. Um, so I didn't finish the program. And I literally was like, never going to do education again, done. I was just kind of like, worked for a newspaper for a while. I like did some like home renovation stuff with my uncle who was a contractor, <laughs> like all kinds of just random things. And um, my brother was working for a company that, uh, a food company that delivered food to charter schools in the area. And he was like, hey, we're looking for somebody to help out, to serve some meals. It was easy. I just wanted something simple, like not complicated. I got to work with my brother, who's like my best friend. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. That sounds fun, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a while. And the school I was at, the charter school I was at, um, was kind of like another, it was another green dot school. It was kind of like run of the mill. It didn't really seem that different from the regular public schools. Um, and they asked me if I wanted to get like more involved, but I couldn't get like a feel for what they were doing. It didn't seem any different than public schools. Um, so I declined. And then um, Ash, this other charter school opened that was a truly independent charter school that was also one of the first like black run, black led for uh, the community they serve schools with Dr. Sullivan. She wrote um, Cultivating Genius for the Black Child. And um, she, they hired me on. And I got to know her really well. And they, I started doing para work and things like that. And I really was like, wow, this is like kind of something I would actually want to be part of, you know? And then that school closed. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, well, no. okay, I'm out of education again. I'm not going back. I'm done. Like, that's it. And then, you know, the charter community is really small. And the COO at RVLA, they were going through a lot of changes. They were looking for somebody and they asked me if I wanted to come there. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, sure. I'll try it out. You know, I really didn't know. They hadn't really put out their new mission and their new vision yet. So I didn't know exactly like what, RVLA was going to be about, all about. Um, and then when I got there, I was like, I have the feeling this is like, I'm going to like the changes that are happening here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what the mission was. I just had this vibe. I was like, it seems like something's in the works. And yeah. the people at Permache were kind of like, just wait, just wait. I think you're going to like it, you know, like give it a chance. So I did. And, uh, 
and I, you know, I ended up loving it and I really truly believed in what they were doing. And I didn't really even think that this kind of thing was happening in Washington state. And it wasn't until then. Um, and so, uh, just from there, I kind of like started to do other work within the school and they had asked me to, if I wanted to do other things within the school. And this time I said, yes, <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> I do want to do that. I do want to be part of this. And so that's how I ended up here. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I'm, this is going to be it. This having all three of you on the same podcast, this is going to, we have a ton of stuff to cover and we won't be able to cover it all because I also have a lot of questions for you. Great. That was fantastic. Let's um, move along with Lenny because I want to jump into these questions that I'm sure people who will listen to this also have. So Lenny, if you could kind of tell us how you got into the charter school world and if it was just a fraction as interesting as what Leah and um, Bayon said, then it'll be fantastic too so it's going to be way better than both of their stories babe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah now we have so, a competition going <laughs> <laughs> my journey to charter schools chapter one <laughs> um, I actually started I was doing an after school program here um, last year I'm, I'm brand new brand spanking new to the charter school world right um, I was working I've been in uh, traditional public schools. I've been in working with uh, uh, youth that are involved in the court systems. And uh, I was working with the Boy Scouts. Um, I've always been working with youth since I graduated from University of Washington, which we went, we attended together. <laughs> so there's another connection of the journey of how I got here. Nice. <laughs> um, and so I, I ran I ran a martial arts program um, last year, and kind of that's where I first saw how uh, RVLA worked, what they stood for, because I didn't know anything about it. Um, I had previously been talking to Bayon about this and other things. Um, so if she's involved in it, then you already know there's value because we we already have a community. So a lot of things and a lot of folks that are involved in RVLA are a part of the community already or have come from the community. So there's, there's that piece of value that that's why people come here. Um, and then that's kind of what got my attention because I was not interested. I was doing my thing at uh, Cleveland High School, doing CTE, doing careers, doing all that stuff, internships and running those programs. Um, and working on my business, my gym. So I didn't, it wasn't, it didn't cross my mind, but uh, after doing the after-school program, I was like, hmm, so you're like, this is your school? Like you don't have to, you don't have, there's no other systems that are blocking your greatness, <laughs> right? There's nothing like your, this is your building. This is your school. This is your program. It's like, that's it. There's nobody else. There's no bigger district you have to check in with, right? So I thought that was really cool. It's like running your own business, really. Um, and everything, as an entrepreneur, every you know everything is on you, right? You take risk every day. The bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. But you also have the mindset of, if I don't, if I don't get this done at a certain level, 
then um, everything's gonna fall. Um, so it's really on you and on the people that are, are with you, your team. And I actually went to school with some other folks here that were already on the team. I got to meet some new folks and just get background about RVLA. Um, and so one day, I'm minding my own business in Lenny's world, and Bayon calls me. Bayon's phone call. Uh-huh. Bayon calls and says, hey, what are you doing? It's like, <laughs> are you interested? Are you, are you still looking for something, right? I was like, yeah. I don't, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm looking for something? I'm good. Cool. I'm chilling. <laughs> and then she was like, can you come in for an interview tomorrow morning? This is already in the like evening. And she's asking for me to come into an interview, which I don't know what I'm interviewing for tomorrow morning. I don't <laughs> and I'm about like to leave that. out of town as well, right? So <laughs> I'm like, you know what? It's Bayon. We like, there's already value there. So I'm like, now I'm curious, like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you talking about, Bayon? What are you, what are you trying to rope me into? And I'm I'm easily roped into stuff. <laughs> I'm I want to see what you're doing, right? If there's a, if it's a cool opportunity, like how, how do we make it work? Especially if it's with you, right? Oh. Um, so I come in for the interview, which I don't know what I'm interviewing for, and I you know, no, you didn't. Okay. You, you <laughs> and then so she. You know how you're supposed to get the interview questions before the interview, like at least five minutes before, 10 minutes before? No. I just go in. And they start asking me interview questions based off of a job that I don't know what I'm interviewing. So don't know what I'm interviewing for. Then they're breaking it down after we get through that. And they're telling me like, hey, here's the need. Here's where we're at. We're growing. We're expanding. We need to um, grow our staff, grow our students, grow our scholars, and we need to reach out to the community. We're at the point now where it's either, you know, you're coming from a, a new, as a, as a new business owner, you either stay where you're at or you make a decision to grow and you need to invest in that. And so that's where they were at right now. They told me about the opportunity. They told me the risk. Um, and it sounded so great. It sounded great. <laughs> they sold me. They sold me. She, know, she knew that I wanted to be in the community. I wanted to build for the community. Um, I have a lot of resources. I have a lot of networking. I've been working in the community in, in different capacities for a very long time here in Seattle, although I'm not from here. Um, I've built up quite a bit of a network. And so um, I've been looking for an opportunity to kind of give back, right? And this was like in the stars. Um, <laughs> my, a little bit about my background in education. I, I was in like the, that kid that's in the single class, like all by yourself in elementary, right? So I was the kid in the class all by yourself while everybody else was in a regular class, um, I just had a lot of energy. I had a lot of thoughts. I wanted to draw. I wanted to create poetry. I was very creative with my skill sets, and I couldn't sit there. And school wasn't, um, you know, it just wasn't made for a child 
that is so creative and has so much energy, they didn't have any outlets for me. And so it turned into punishments, right? And then working in um, the juvenile, working in traditional schools, they're, they're still the same. Even at University of Washington, they didn't have a lot of systems set up for uh, kids of color when they come in. Um, there's no systems where you, there's an outlet that culturally responds to your needs. Um, they didn't have the staff, they didn't have, they had a couple of people, but as a whole institution, it was not there. Um, you have to purposefully build that in. And so me and education have had a fight our whole <laughs> lives. And uh, there was a point where I didn't feel like I was, you know, worth much as far as my skills or what I had to offer because everything was a punishment. Um, until um, I got into college and I started meeting some, some folks and I had some mentors and I got into the world, started working with youth. And then I started contracting with folks and kept meeting new folks. And it's like, hey, did you meet Lenny? He does this and this. So all the qualities and skills that I used to get punished for, sent to a room by myself all day. Now I get paid. People are requesting services, right? Like, it's crazy, the flip that happened. And so that's still happening to youth right now. And luckily, I had opportunities to get out of that cycle. But what about all the students that don't have that opportunity at other places. Um, but here at RVLA, we see you, we see the families, we listen, we listen for value, we understand circumstances, we understand um, perspectives, and so we can speak to you in whatever language or whatever culture you're coming from, based off of shared life experiences, we can uh, model an education program around your family and your student. So that's what, that's why I'm here. I love that. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I mean, there's a lot that I pulled from that. One of the things that I jotted down was just no outlets lead to, you know, unfortunately, in a broken system punishments, which is not, yeah, I thought that was really profound. Well, fantastic. Um, let's jump into this question because, man, I just have so much on my mind. Let's start with, just for people who don't know anything about RVLA, when did it start? What's the history behind it? Um, you know, yeah, we just want to know day one, what, what, was the, what did that look like? Yeah, um, so as I kind of hinted to previously, um, Rainier, Valley, Rainier Valley Leadership Academy was a um, group of three schools that was ran by a national charter um, network. And uh, they had closed down two schools um, in the greater Seattle area. Um, let's see, they originally opened, I wanna say like 2017, um, was when they first started, uh, or 2000, 2017, 2016 was when they first opened up and they had the three schools, um, one in Seattle, Washington, which is RBLA, 
They had one in Kent, um, which was Excel. And then they had another one um, that was out in Tacoma. And I can't remember the name of that one exactly, but it was, they were all, um, all under the same umbrella with the same national charter network. When they closed those two schools, um, they knew ahead of time, but they didn't let community know that they knew ahead of time. Um, and so there was some frustration around, and RVLA was actually going to um, split into the middle school being in one building and the high school being in a separate building. Um, and so when they decided that they couldn't support these other two schools uh, because the other school, I think they were having issues with enrollment or something to that matter, they just decided that they were gonna close the two schools. And uh, community from RVLA was pretty much like, you're not closing down our school. Um, and when they told families that they were closing, it was in June. And families basically didn't, in Washington state, in the greater Seattle area, you get to go to a choice school if you apply by February. So families knowing in June that they had to then go back to their neighborhood district schools that they were frustrated with um, did not give them any opportunities to like apply for any other type of schooling or scholarships or to apply for choice schools within their respective areas or anything like that. So there was a, and they were also being told like, these are the teachers who care about you. And all of a sudden, like none of these teachers are going to like, whatever. So there yeah. was a lot of frustration that happened. Um, RBLA was like, we're not going to allow that to happen to us. At the same time, the RBLA staff was very frustrated by the things that they were seeing. Um, and I'm still not here at this point, right? <laughs> so they're frustrated by what they're seeing. And so um, that summer, I believe, they had already had about 50% of their staff leave. And then throughout that summer, they pretty much had the other 50, we'll say 49% of their staff leave because only one actual teacher stayed with the organization that was from that year prior from the 2018-2019 school year. Um, at the same time, they're communicating with me to say, hey, come over here, come over here, come over here, like communities like we need you. So I'm assuming also that all of the teachers that were here previously are also the teachers here, as are the families. So when I'm hired on, I'm hired on with the full staff and the full staff is all a new staff minus that one teacher. They also didn't communicate um, to families that that was actually going to happen um, and that none of the teachers who were here previously, they, that they weren't actually coming back and only one of the teachers from that high school was actually going to be coming back. So when families stepped in on day, on day one of 2019 school year that fall, they were all like, wait, hold on. Like it was, I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, Coraline, or seen the movie Coraline, but it's like, uh -uh. It, it's, a, it's a book where, you know, like they take the family, replace them in their actual dolls with like button eyes, right? Like it was kind of like, it's like a whole separate yeah. universe. And so it was kind of like that for our scholars and families walking in the first day. It's like, okay, we interviewed this principal. We know who this person is, but we thought all of our teachers were coming back into the spaces, right? Like this is our new school building. Everything looks great you know, like what is actually happening. And at the same time, they also increased the size of the school by 50% over that summer. 
right? So That's all crazy. of those scholars who were at some of the other schools that were closing, et cetera, like they were like, oh, everybody come to RVLA as well as other, you know, folks who, you know, weren't in anybody who's opening up a school or that's in school in education knows that like you cannot increase enrollment by 50 <laughs> percent yeah. in one summer and expect for you to be able to hold culture or for folks to actually be able to nest you know, like just all and on top of that you have a completely new staff um yeah. pretty much a hundred percent of your teachers um as we started to do some of our audits and digging um at the same time, this charter network, this national charter network had pulled out all of the systems from RBLA. So the information system, like phones, like every system that you can think of that like you have to do like for a whole year before you ever even start a school, all of them were pulled. And then it was like, oh, here's a new system. So when I needed to contact a family, I would open it uh, up our student information system and it would just be the name of the scholar. There was nothing else there. Like, I don't know who your parents are. <laughs> but I'm like, I don't know who your parents are. I don't know what your phone number is. I don't know what your address is. Like, I have no information right now. So now I've got to try to go through archive folders to try to figure out like, how do I communicate with this family to make sure that they're being taken care of? Um, Man, I think one of the other things too, yeah, it, it was it was pretty wild. Um, also at the same time, when you have scholars, middle school and high school scholars who are feeling like they are abandoned, um, they communicate in two different ways. They either communicate physically because of their frustrations or else they communicate verbally because of their frustrations. And neither one of them are going to be anything that's positive because they've been hurt and they have a rightful place to actually be hurt in that space. Like no one communicated to them that their teachers weren't coming back. Um, no one communicated to them that all these new kids were going to be in their classrooms that they didn't know and didn't have relationships with. So there was a lot of frustration from scholars. And so they acted out because of it, you know, and they were also like, you're going to just leave us too. You know, so there was just yeah. a lot of um, frustration and pain within the community that was happening at the same time. Um, in addition, through our audits, we also started to discover that like almost 50% of the teachers had never gone through a teaching program and were all emergency sub-certificated and were not necessarily equipped to be working with um, anyone in education, as well as specifically our scholars in education. Holy so, um, and they signed up for an old vision they were receiving a new vision and mission. And they're like, we also didn't sign up. You know, some of them were just, you know, very explicit. Like I didn't sign up to be a part of a school that is going to, you know, uh, actually talk about race. That's not what I want to do. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to be here based off of it. Like, I don't, I don't want to have those conversations. Um, I don't want to have to, you know, like if the kid's not learning, kid's not learning, like that's their fault. You know, like those types of perceptions um, were very uh, present. Um, in some of the teaching staff that was present that year. And so there was a lot that really families were like, nope, I'm not, we're not going to do this. We're not going to close down like the other schools. I got to hurry up and find another school for my child now before the school closes down. But essentially um, the, the conversation with community was very clear that we had to do something different. And we knew as a community that the school was not set up to actually succeed or excel to be able to be where we are at today. 
Um, it was more so like, let's throw some folks in the pot so we can say what we needed to, we did what we needed to do and like, let's move on. And like, we can kind of wash our hands of this and we're done and, you know, whatever happens, happens kind of deal. Um, and thankfully based off of community support and the families who were like, no, like we're digging in our heels, like we're really going to do this. We're going to make this happen. Um, and the tenacity of the teachers that, you know, were like, no, we're staying like, this is exactly what we want to do. Um, and being able to pull different folks from other places um, and seeking those folks out because there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, well, you know, we just didn't get enough global majority teachers, you know, to come to us or we just can't find the right talent for that position. And we were like actively going out and like knocking on doors, making phone calls and saying like, hey, we know that this is your area of expertise. We know that you're really good at this. We need you here right now kind of deal. Yeah. Um, and through that type of hard work and seeking folks out from community and within community and having very honest and transparent conversations and being very resilient and just, you know, saying we're not going to give up. We're not going to just acquiesce to other folks, you know, setting us up for failure. We're going to take that and we're going to do something different with it. We're going to be successful. Um, that's why we're here still today. Wow. Okay. So first of many questions in my head and in uh, many on paper, I think it's vital, obviously, um, every successful charter school that I speak with, they unapologetically know who they are. It's easy to say that, it's really hard to do that. It's so hard when they have so much pressure and people with different interests involved, how, have you maintained, you know, your strength in staying where you are and, you know, you know who you are and being true to yourself, even with all the external pressures that come with running a charter school? I think I'm going to let Leah and Lenny answer that one, as I think the folks who witness certain things instead. Awesome. Well, Leah, if you want to go ahead and answer a little bit to that, that'd be great. Okay. Um, I think, I think. Um, so I'm not the person continuing to talk. Well, how do we maintain our brand? How do we oh, oh, there she is. Leah, you got it? Oh, yeah. Sorry. My internet is being weird. Um, were you answering it, Lenny? Or, sorry, me. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'd say, you know, the, I'd say you stay true to it because you know that it's the right thing to do. You know, I, I think um, you stay true to the vision because you believe in it and because there is no alternative. Like, like the, the other alternative would be to fail the community because they, this is what they want. They've spoken, they've told us, the elders have told us, this is what's needed. This is what will be the difference in what we're doing compared to what the other schools are doing. Um, we have to be different because they're here because the other schools weren't working for them. The other schools they were at were failing them. So if we just give in and become just like those schools, we have no business being open, basically. And I think that if you really understand that and you really believe that, then nothing will stop you. Whew. Man, 
Uh, <laughs> Lenny, can you one up that one? That, I love that. Thank you so much, Leah. I won't one up it. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> piggyback on that. That's an inside joke. It's an inside joke. Um, <laughs> so the community decided what we are based off of our pillars. They decided, hey, these are the values. This is your mission. This is your vision. This is who, this is who we are. This is what we want. As individuals that make things happen in this school, we all um, come from that same ideal of what they already chose as an identity and as a brand. So we, we can't even be anything else if we wanted to. Can't yeah, be a McDonald's, can't be, be a Burger King. <laughs> That's who we are. I can't change it. I just, I, I'm, well, go ahead. The, the, the way that you and Leah expressed your, yourselves with that question, it, I, I admire a lot. Um, I'll, sometimes when, as you know, a marketer for charter schools, I'm always asking charter schools, what makes you different? What makes you unique? And oftentimes I'll say, oh, well, we, we focus on American history or um, the constitution, or we focus on a STEM and technology. It's like, oh, but, but who are you? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, we have like this nice gym. And no, who are you? Who are you? And I, I think you guys have a really good grasp on exactly who you are. And like you said, Lenny, like you don't have another option when you know who you are. Like mm -hmm. that, so that's fantastic. And Leah, the way that you said, you know, if we are, like what, we have no, you know, we shouldn't be in business if we're just gonna be exactly what everyone else is. Like, so I think it's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for that. And which leads me to my next question, I feel like, whoever you are is really based on who is on your team and your staff and your teachers. Bayon talked about this a little bit with teachers that were kind of roped into maybe a, something that they didn't really stand behind and they didn't really last because of that, which um, leads me to now wonder, how do you guys make sure that you hire the right people to be able to you know, serve your students and be able to lead your mission. How, how does that um, hiring process work at RBLA? Yeah, so we have a, a pretty extensive hiring process. Um, I think I would start by just simply saying a part of it has to do with um, being able to sit down in front of someone as a global majority person. Um, and in like to take one step back as folks of the global majority, we have to assess the situation when we walk into a room almost immediately to figure out if it's a safe situation for us or if it's gonna be an unsafe situation. And that's a matter of 30 seconds, right? And so like, I can go into a room and be like, that person has great energy. I need to stay away from that person. This person is that thing. That person is gonna be that thing or, you know, like, you have to make some, some quick decisions based off of how folks are looking at you, you know, how, how they're dealing with you, how they're interacting with you just within the first few minutes. So 
I think as global majority people sitting down in those spaces to sometimes interview folks, like you instantly kind of have somewhat of a read on, is this the right energy for our community? Um, and I would also say like through the pandemic and having to do that online, that was a very, very difficult thing for us to, yeah. to work through because um, I think we made some decisions even then where it was like, once we kind of got face to we we didn't, we weren't face to face. We did not sit in the same room with some of our teachers for a year based off of the fact that we had the pandemic happening. So there were some folks where we started to sit down with them when it was time to come back and we're like, whoa, this isn't the right field for the school kind of deal, right? Just based off of that, those quick decisions that you have to make in order to assess whether or not you're safe or not in spaces. Yeah. Um, I would say as far as like a actual process, we have a pretty ex extensive process where um, one, we go out and we seek folks who we know are a part of community to try and bring them into um, our space. Um, and that's really important for us because if we have folks who are from community, then it becomes very difficult to say that, well, I'm just not going to do my job and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, right? Because regardless, you know, I tell folks this all the time, but regardless of what position I hold wherever I'm at, I'm going to always be a part of my community. So I can't escape yeah. that. I have to go back home. I'm going to still run into folks at the grocery store. I'm going to run into folks at birthday parties. I'm going to be at a backyard barbecue and I'm going to have folks asking me about how their children is doing or why this person is doing that or why this person is doing this. I'm going to have the elders who are going to call me or come to my house and pop up because they have a question or they need an answer for something specifically. So there's a different yeah. level of accountability when you have folks who are from community being in these situations because you can't fail. Right. Because it's mm -hmm. not I can't just drive out of this community and then say, like, I'm going to go back to my home that's 45 you know, minutes away from here or whatever, and never have to see anybody else again, right? Yeah. Which a lot of our charter school leaders sit in those spaces. I plopped up a school in a space. I don't live in this community. If it doesn't go well, oh the hell well, I get to drive back to where <laughs> I want to. I'm gonna be with my family and friends and I'm never gonna see these people again. For okay. folks who are part of community, that's not the same thing. Like we have to do our job because if we don't, then someone's gonna come for us, regardless of where yeah. you think you're gonna go. So um, I would say that that's really important for us too, is like bringing community as much as we can into the space so that we all hold um, accountability and ownership of what is actually happening. But then we also hire for the things that we believe are very important. So we hire for social emotional learning from our adults. Um, we have conversations with them. We let them know ahead of time, like you're gonna do circles. Like we're going to practice some indigenous uh, circle work. We're going to, you know, do restorative circles, you know, and if that's not your thing, because you feel like you're not touchy filly or anything like that, then this really isn't the space. For and you. could you expound on what that is? What is a circle? Yeah. So with um, our circles, we use a combination of indigenous circles and Valor Compass Circles. Valor is another high performing charter school. Um, and they've taken indigenous circles um, basically and, have kind of created a um, an outline for what that actually looks like, like different steps that you take um, based off of like trauma-informed practices, which circles are intrinsically trauma-informed because they come from community who addresses trauma directly from indigenous communities. Um, and so, and I think it's important when we talk about circles, we also understand that we're not talking about just North American indigenous folks. We're talking about folks who are indigenous populations across the globe 
who have all been doing circles for a very, very long time in order to um, deal with uh, harms that happen in their community, to have conversations in their communities, to make sure that there's equity in voice um, and that everybody's diverse perspective is actually being heard. And so that's essentially like what our circles are. It's a space for us to come together as a community and to say, you know, um, and we, we do kind of like homework or what we call badge work where there might be something for us to actually reflect upon or do in that space. Like there's a homework assignment that we need to bring. Um, and it's actually a self-reflection homework assignment for us specifically as the person who's bringing it to circle. But what that does is, is like typically when you're walking around a school or a business or any organization that you've ever worked in, most folks kind of congregate in the lunchroom and you kind of get to hear some people's stories because they're, they're talking loudly or you're like, oh, that's happening with that person. But as an organization or as the adults who are in those spaces, you actually don't know those things unless someone else is telling you or unless someone directly comes and tells you that this is what's happening with me. So by having circles and by us doing these self-reflections, we can bring that. And then all of a sudden, regardless of me and Lenny, uh, never talk to each other because he listens to, you know, um, rock music and I listen to country music. And so like, we don't have any interest or whatever. I'm now learning something about Lenny and I can say, oh, we, our favorite color is yellow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we connect based off of that, based off of this story that you told today, uh, based off of your self-reflection about who you are as an individual. So now, instead of me going behind Lenny's back to go and talk about him, I might actually have pause and be like, well, I can't, like, that's not cool because like, I know that he's going through this thing right now, or I now have some relationship with him to be able to connect in a different way that I would have never connected with him otherwise. So we explicitly do that with our staff and we do that with our staff based off of social emotional learning because we feel like it's really important and most adults do not exhibit the skills that they're asking for children to exhibit. So we do this work with our scholars and if we're asking our scholars to do it then as the adults and as a board, um, then we also should be doing it as well. So we explicitly hire for that, um, for like, you, the understanding that you are going to continue to build your social emotional learning skills. You are going to be asked to share about yourself. Um, and it's up to the person how deep or not deep they want to go based off of whatever they're yeah. sharing. So there's still a level of like autonomy in that space for them as well, but you are going to do this assignment and this is a part of your, your professional responsibilities in our space because for us, professionalism is community. Um, and that's not always in other spaces. I think to the same degree, we also do that with, um, with anti-racist practices, right? So like we have very explicit conversations around, you know, like what is anti-racism? Like, what is your definition of it? How do you address it? You know, like what are the situations that have occurred for you? What hasn't occurred for you? Like, how do you wanna grow in these spaces? Like, let's have a conversation, you know, about some articles that we read together, et cetera, um, to just better get it like a, a better understanding of, are you going to be able to have a conversation when a scholar comes to you and says, actually that thing that you did today was pretty racist and it really harmed me in this way. Are you gonna be able to take a step back and not get defensive and say, well, like, dang, hold on. Like, that's what happened. Like, we need to pause class and we need to actually have a conversation about something that I just did right here and right now that like, we have to make sure it doesn't happen again, right? Like we need to, we need to rectify this situation. Um, or I need to do a restorative conversation with the scholar because something I said was harmful to them and they came back and they said, hey, that's not okay. I think in a lot of spaces, like 
scholars don't have the opportunity to tell an adult that they're wrong and actually have an adult apologize to them for it and say like, this is how I'm going to get better to make sure that I'm teaching you. Um, and so we need for this two-way feedback loop to actually happen with our adults because that's how we also coach as well. So being able to coach teachers and being able to say like, hey, and a, and a coach may say something or, you know, someone that I'm coaching may say something back to me. And I'm like, oh, that, that's good. Like, I need to reflect on that. I need to change a little bit of my practice here as well. Um, that's good feedback for me. So it has to be a, a two way feedback loop. So and then we're looking for skill. But I think ultimately what we have a very clear understanding on is that racism is murder. And so the moment that we put folks in front of our children who are exhibiting racism explicitly in front of them and even non-explicitly explicitly in front of them, like it's a, it's a murdering that's happening to their souls, right? And by educators standing in classrooms and not actually teaching and putting that onus on the scholar to learn rather than for us to actually make sure that they're receiving the information that we're supposed to be getting to them, then that creates neighborhoods that we don't wanna live in. Right, that creates situations where scholars are going to go out and be murdered. And so we have to ask ourselves as the educators in that space, like, are we going to be complicit in that? Are we going to be an accessory to murder because we didn't do what we were supposed to do in a classroom, because we didn't have a conversation that we were supposed to have, because we didn't work on ourselves as the adults in the social emotional learning aspect, were we not empathetic enough or whatever the case was. So our hiring process looks a little bit different. And I think like to Lenny's point earlier, like we go out and we seek that talent out that we want to see as well. Like we don't just wait for it to come to us, so. Wow. It's listening to all three of you speak, it's very clear that um, you are all very intentional with the words that you say and use, and that words are very powerful. Like Lenny likes poetry. Um, and like ever since he is a little, like words were powerful, um, Bayon, every little word that you say like is so intentional and it is so there's so much meaning behind it all and the things that you guys like the phrase that is that you use are actually a little unique to me i'm i'm kind of trying and i kind of understand them via the context but i love that um so like back when we were kids the 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 saying was, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. And I, we would just kind of say whatever we wanted. And if anyone got upset by what we said, then, you know, it's they're, they're whiffs or they're, they're less than because they're too sensitive. Can you, if, if someone at their school is listening to this podcast, they're a leader at their charter school and they notice that language has um, maybe degraded a little bit and they don't have a very safe sensitive place how would you tell that person or what advice would you give them to be able to change that because it's really hard to change the way that we speak um, for example I say you guys all the time even though I have a team of just women and and one of them said like hey like not a big deal like we love you and everything but let's not use you guys anymore. And I said, okay, like, uh, thank you for letting me know. And even though she's told me, I, I always just say you guys. And it's so hard to break that cycle, but, but I'm working on it. What advice would you give someone who wants to change something that's so hard to, to, to change? Does, so you said something 
does the person want to change? Does the person know they need to change? <laughs> uh, right? So before you were unaware. Yeah. So you have to be put in a place or something has to happen that makes you aware. Right? RVLA. We're going to make you aware. <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> then there's the want, there's the acceptance, there's the reflection. You're like, yeah, whoa, because I went through the same thing. And I was like, man, you know, I say these things a lot. I say these type of things based on today's environment and society. Things are not the same as they used to be. Before you could say you guys, you could say all kinds of stuff without anybody thinking of anything. Or maybe they were, but nobody said anything. But now it's more out front. So you have to adapt with the times. You have to be in a place that is healthy, that you could, somebody could say that to you and you accept it and you reflect on it. And you have the social emotional awareness, the skills to, after that, act on it. And yeah. then every day, it's not just, it doesn't happen just right away. Just like you said, you're like, I have to keep working on it. It's not a one-time thing. So now it has to be important to you because those other people or how you show up or the relationships that you have with your team are important to you. Yeah. When well, the trouble comes when it's not important to you or you view your team as less. Like in society, we have all these issues. We have crime, we have murder, we have abuse by government um, departments. And it's because people don't care. People see other people as less, right? So there needs to be a balance of all those things. Well, if I could add something too, I think there also has to be a conversation and a why behind it as well, right? Like if someone's just coming and saying like, don't say guys anymore, right? Like how does that make you feel when I say guys, right? Because now that's being cemented with me about how that actually affects you. Um, and then I can give you some context as to like why I continue to say guys, right? Like, or, or can you help me by, you know, like catching me every time or saying something to me, to, you know, about it when I do it. I think, you know, there are, there are some things that um, being able to understand the power of words and how they affect people. Um, and also being able to have an understanding of how those words have affected different people based off of the color of their skin, based off of how melanated they are, how non-melanated they are, also sits in a space mm -hmm. of like privilege with words as well, right? Um, for example, we, we have a, a colleague who goes by they, them, and one of our elders called them by a different pronoun. And it was a conversation because this elder was like, that doesn't, I have, to, I have to instead say this person's name. I can't say they or them because for me, it's a very traumatic experience because when I was younger, if I didn't use proper English, I was beat by my white teacher as a black young lady. 
So for them, like they're like, I can't say they and them if it doesn't grammatically make sense in this conversation. But what is another respectful way that I can call you, you know, by your name and still honor who I am as well? Right. And it's like, oh, just call me by my name then. Perfect. I can do that. Right. But again, like you don't understand that if you're not having a conversation. Right. Like you're not understanding that this has been a whole PTSD situation for this person. The moment that you ask them to say they or them and they're like, I can call you Bayon. I can commit to that. I can make sure that I do that for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I want to respect where you're coming from. And so I can do that. But I can't do this other thing. But the, the conversation now is supportive of now I understand that by you doing that, that brings back all of these emotions about you literally being beat by a white teacher who was telling you, you have to use proper, you know, grammar all of the time, yeah. right? So it, it's a conversation and it's a why, right? Like we use global majority. We don't use people of color. I'm not gonna call you a people of no color down, right? Like it sounds offensive, but for other folks on the other side, they're like, oh, well, no, that's fine. That's not a big deal. No, yeah. it is a big deal, right? I don't wanna be called a person of color. You know, like when we, it, it comes from a deficit-based mindset, but saying global majority, because more folks across the globe are actually melanated, that's a fact. And it also gives me a sense of pride in who I actually am. Yeah. And so it's about being able to understand why we use language, why we call scholars scholars. I want you to live up to being a scholar. I don't want you to live up to being a bad kid, right? So I'm not going to call you a bad kid. There's no such thing as bad kids at RVLA. Right. They made a mistake. This should be a healthy place for them to grow. But when we understand those types of things and we can have those conversations based off of language and understanding the power of language, our minds don't support negative comments being made to us. That only causes us continued harm. Yeah. And so by knowing that and by understanding brain research, then we can have a conversation about the power of language. And now we can use the power of language to actually support the relationships that we have. Right. By by you changing guys to y'all will be supportive (laughs) of now having folks in your organization. Right. To say, like, he's no longer calling us guys. He's calling us at least y'all or he's using this other term. And I also recognize why this is so hard for him. Maybe you have all brothers. It's always always you guys in the house or whatever the case may be. Right. But like being able to have those conversations, it's not just. I need you to do this because it's going to make me feel better. It's I need you to do this and this is the reason why. And if you can't do that, what can you commit to so that we can make sure that we have a relationship that we can be respectful towards one another in? And now y'all have more trust in each other. (laughs) Now y'all have more value in each other because you see the effort that goes into the negotiation. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much that, man, this conversation is so... So elevating. Uh, I did not sign up up for this. I I said, hey, do you guys want to do a podcast about charter schools? And I didn't ask for a TED talk. This is fantastic. Um, Keep it coming. Um, We don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'm going to skip all these questions. And it hurts me to do so because, man, yeah, this is we're going to have a round two for sure. But um. With, I want to get to students. Um, that's one question I definitely don't want to leave out and skip because students are obviously one of the biggest reasons why we do what we do, or scholars. Let me change the way that I say that. Um, how do you motivate scholars in today's world? 
when, when I feel like we grew up in, in just a different generation where we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have social media telling us who that who we need to be. Um, what? How do you motivate scholars today? Leah, you got that. <laughs> okay. Um, honestly, I mean, I think that scholars are naturally motivated. They just aren't necessarily put in environments where they have the resources and the opportunities and the support to achieve their motivation. So, I mean, I think it's, it's not something you like, you give them or you, you know, provide to them. It's more that they're, they've got, they're motivated. I mean, they're determined, they're, they've, they're ambitious. They've got dreams, yeah. they've got goals that's already in them. And that's given to them through their community and their family and their own internal um, uh, values. And so I think really what happens in a lot of schools and a lot of institutions is that uh, it's not recognized that that's already something that's part of them. And it's thought like, oh, we need to give this to them or we need to, to let them know that they should be, what they should be doing or what they should want in life. And, and in reality, uh, I think if you provide them a safe space with lots of opportunities and lots of people that they can relate to that uh, come from their community, that understand them, um, that the opportunities you provide are, are safe for them and they find value in them, then you don't even need to worry about that. The motivation is already there. They're going to they're gonna do it. They're going to rise right. to that to that occasion, you know. I love that. What I... is happening back there? You guys are talking. <laughs> <laughs> He's already trying to find something to piggyback on. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, uh, I love I it. muted I him. Have, okay. He was trying to say something. I said that was an excellent response. That was crazy. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I completely agree. You guys are are hitting dingers, hitting some home runs. Uh, I must be giving you guys some softball questions because y'all are really hitting them out of the park. Um, I have a a brother in law. He's twelve years old, and he walks so slow. Like everywhere we go, he walks so slow. He's like the coolest kid in the world, but he's just a slow walker. And I always tell people like. He, man, he's just always dragging his feet. And then um, the other day we were walking to a store that he wanted to go to. And I was just walking at my normal speed. And I realized like, wait, we're, we're, we're just walking normal. This is weird. Like I'm not turning around and he's not 50 yards behind me all the time. And that, that's when I learned like, he's not slow. He just wasn't motivated when we were going to do the other errands. Mm. And so I love what you said, Leah. Like it's it's not that they're just naturally motivated. You just got to give them that safe space to to be what they are motivated. So I love that. Um, and then if you're if you're gonna take it, like let's say take that question into the school uh, environment, right? 
that's the always the big question is oh how do we motivate our students how could we get them more engaged in curriculum <laughs> I'm, I don't know why I'm using that voice <laughs> that's my all educator voice <laughs> okay um so that one's a little bit harder though like it is a it is a difficult question because yeah. you're limited in what you can do with the, the scholar or student in that environment. When they go out of school, they go find stuff to do. Just like <laughs> Leah said, they don't need motivation. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. <laughs> and they have like all these things that are just, you know, going off all around them, just like, they can get into all kinds of stuff, but school is, it's traditional schools. It's so hard because you're in a box. You only have six subjects to choose from <laughs> to get motivated about. And then we're going back to that question. Why should I be motivated about this? When there's all these other things going on that are more appropriate to my time and my age and my interest right now. Mm -hmm. And so the trick becomes then, how do we figure out those interests and how do we tap into that like inner self that you don't even share? Mm -hmm. So how do we get to that too? And then now we can talk about how this curriculum is, um, is appealing to you and why you should care and why you should get there. Yeah. We have to build a sense of urgency in education. And that's the that's the fine line, that's the magic trick is like how, where do we get that sense of urgency so the person is kind of tuned in during the, their time with us when there's all this other stuff that's going on in their head. Yeah. Like, you know, they got motion pictures probably popping above their head all day long. And we're trying to instill these skills and these ideals but we're not giving them anything tangible when their whole life is tangible. Yeah. Well, it's the relationships. I yeah. think too, like, like decolonizing the curriculum, you yeah. know, like making sure that they can, that, that they're represented in the information fairly and realistically mm -hmm. that they're being taught so that they. Well, one thing that. I personally just, struggle with it. My mm -hmm. whole life, right? Remember, I was in school, I was in class by myself, but yeah. I wrote all the poetry, I drew all the pictures for the school events, everything. Um, high school, college, I was like, why do we have to take these classes <laughs> that I like? I couldn't for the life of me understand why we have to take these prerequisites just to get to the thing that I really <laughs> want to do. It's, yeah. it's so weird, so weird. <laughs> um, so that's the problem. That's the issue. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, that's a, a word that all three of you have mentioned multiple times in different contexts is, is just the why. Like beyond with the why behind why you feel that way if someone says a certain thing or the why behind uh, why you're taking that class or the why behind getting motivated. So I think that's great that you guys um are incorporating that in what you're doing at RBLA and that you're bringing that to everyone else's attention listening. Um, a really 
fascinating question that I really want to fit in before we wrap up. Um, we have a couple more and we'll kind of do a little bit more of a lightning round style so that we can get through a couple of these that I think are very valuable to, to our listeners is kind of, you know, not a smooth segue, but an important segue, I believe is, is there anything that you guys would like to see happen within your local state federal government? Um, because I think that question really brings some interesting answers. And if you don't, it's, it's kind of a touchy subject too. So don't feel free to, to steer clear of anything that you'd rather not any hot topics, but. No, I, I would love to see more support go towards our scholars um, in Washington state around special education. Uh, we have a cool. cap in Washington state for 13.5%. So at your school, um, you don't get funds beyond 13.5% for special education services to be provided to your scholars. Um, RVLA and many other inner urban uh, district schools, whether they be traditional or charter, we're all held to that same law. And most of us have, you know, rates that are above 13.5%. I wanna say like the traditional district is at about 15%. Um, RBLA is at about 23%. So you can see like how much other additional funding needs to happen. Um, specifically for charter schools, I would say like the levy funding is another issue. We have families who are paying their taxes and doing all of those different things. and you know, voting for levy funding, et cetera, but the levy funding does not actually come to charter schools. So we have scholars in our school, in our community that are, their families are paying taxes into, and they're never seeing any of that actually come to support them specifically. Um, and then I think like for Washington state, there's a, a charter window um, where we can only have 40 charter schools across all of the entire Washington, all Washington state. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a conundrum, if you will, because it means that there are other, you know, global majority folks who are from communities who want to open up schools that give their communities a different choice who are unable to do that um, based off of that right now with that. And, and the window closed. So there's only 18 charter schools. So there's more room to hit the 40, but because they have closed, we still don't even get that additional like ramp up to the 40. So we're kind of shut down at 18 right now. Um, and I just think that, you know, again, like when we think about our global majority communities and what, you know, we know about and what information is given to us um, after it's given to some of our white colleagues, we're behind the ball on being able to do certain things within community or the funding is gone or the law has been changed now, or, you know what I mean? Like other folks have been able to find these loopholes and do different things, different ways. Um, and then I would say lastly, like just accountability for all, for all of our public um, schools and education systems. Um, we need to do better about learning from one another. Um, there is no, secret to what we are doing, right? If someone wants to know all they have to do is ask, um, we would be happy to teach them and to support them because we don't wanna be the only anti-racist school. We don't wanna be the only school who's doing this work in our community the way that we're doing it. The, the crux of this conversation and argument between charter schools and traditional schools really should never be an argument because we're both public schools and we should be giving more options to community members 
specifically based off of public education. And our main goal should really be closing down private schools because there's no use for them because everything that you actually need is coming from a free public education system. And charters are just a choice within that system. And we're all working together to make sure that our communities are educated. So when I think about like the way that I would like, and, and I think like we also need to close down some schools that aren't, you know, charter schools have a lot of autonomy, but we have a lot of oversight and we have to be approved every five years in Washington state. We have some, some places that, you know, have been very harmful to schools and to communities and they've been open for 150, you know, years in Washington state. And that in and of itself is a crime. Right. And so we need to have more accountability across all aspects to say, like, what do we need to do to make education better as a public system, regardless of it being traditional or being a charter? Um, and we need to hold ourselves to that accountability and be willing to say, like, we're going to cut this entire staff. We're going to move all these folks out. Like, we're going to clean house. Like, you can't be in front of kids, you know, or we're going to ramp up other programs so that we have different types of educators coming in that can actually relate to the children that they're actually teaching. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's what I would hope to see. That's great. Those are really interesting points. Thanks for bringing those things up. For um, you guys have been, or you all have been so... Uh, <laughs> Good job. I'm, get, I'm getting better. Um, you all have been so uh, patient with my with my questions, and you you might have to be patient with me on this one. Um, but for listeners like myself who aren't familiar with this term, um, Bayon, could you explain what global majority means? Yes. So um, I kind of said a little bit earlier, but typically um, folks have been categorized as white or people of color. Um, and what that has actually done is, is everything about the term people of color comes with a negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are the ones who are, um, or minorities, right? Like that in of itself, is a negative, you know, and quite frankly, by the converse of minority is majority. And we also know that our white colleagues are not the majority across this globe. So it's actually not factual, right? And so, um, and it is also left creating a negative space about who you are as a melanated person um, specifically. Gotcha. And yeah. so when we say people of color, we don't say people of no color. Yeah. Like most folks would feel insulted if you said people of no color, right? Like I'm not a person of no color, I'm white, right? Um, and even with that whiteness, even within whiteness, you have shed some of your cultural identity by simply calling yourself white because you actually might be Scandinavian or German or Swedish or, you know what I mean? Like any number of French or any number of these other things but instead we've kind of done like a, in, in America, especially we've done a frequent flyer of, mm -hmm. uh, of race is what Dr. Alex G calls it, where you get your privilege card and your privilege card says white. And so you say white instead. And then everything else outside of that has been seen as a negative connotation for everybody else who is melanated, right? Um, and in our country, specifically black and indigenous folks who have been forced to be here or have been here and had their, you know, have been culturally deculturized um, 
in those spaces, like there's a, an additional harm there as well, right? So never have I been able to be able to sit in the space and think about the melanin that I have as something that has been a positive yeah. or something that has given me um, pride in when I hear other folks who don't look like me say it. Right, because instead it comes off as something almost like of a disgust. Oh, they're black. You know what I mean? Like they're a person of color, they're BIPOC, they're this. But by saying global majority, I don't care how you want to say it, the words are very true and they give power to who I am as an individual. And I am a black global majority person, right? So I globally, there are more folks across this globe that are melanated. There are more mm -hmm. folks that look like me than they look like you across this globe. Right. And so we are the majority. And so by having to say global majority, it also gives fact to the pride that I should feel about who I am. And so we intentionally do that with our scholars to make sure that they're they know, like, you are global majority. You are black. You are indigenous. And that is a space of power. And that is a space of something that you should be happy about. And that should be something that you should celebrate rather than just simply saying you're a person of color or you're a minority. That doesn't that doesn't give credence to the, the beauty that is being cultivated in these young children. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad I asked you to specify more. That was a very eloquent and great answer. Thank you so much. I guess um, I'm just crossing off all of these questions that I'm saving for next time because we're, we're pretty much wrapped up for, for this episode. I wanted to get into so much more and I'm excited to in the future, but I just kind of wanted to open up the floor because there's nothing worse than being on an episode or on a podcast or on a part of a conversation where you feel like you had something to say and then the conversation closed before you could say it. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I'll just save it for next time. So I want to give all three of you just an opportunity. Is there any, a story, uh, a quote, someone that has inspired you? Um, a funny encounter, anything that you would like um, to, to share before we kind of wrap up this episode for now? Well, if you have something, feel free to share. But I guess the last thing I want to ask is if you had a magic wand and just whew, one thing could be done and just that problem is gone or that debt is gone that school that building is paid for or um, we have a telephone system that does blank what would be, be that one thing with the swish of the wand in regards to your charter school not in regards to driving a ferrari or something like that <laughs> i have mine but i'm not gonna go first i have mine i'm not gonna go second <laughs> uh, for me as the dean of recruitment and community engagement i don't think we said our titles um my my you know i have to worry about recruiting but my real passion is in the connection of community and resources and opportunities and our youth that are here, right? And so I'm on this mission to gather all resources and opportunities 
with my community partners, um, get them on the same page as RVLA uh, and have those opportunities ready so our kids and families can go into their interests. Because the worst thing, the worst crime is when you have context, 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 and no physical outlet for your interests or your skills or your talents. And this is coming from me personally, who went through it. Um, you have to be able to have those outlets um, because there's, there's a lot of stories of a lot of great people in a lot of um, neighborhoods that could have, should have, would have been, right? And so I, I can't have that. Yeah. That's my personal mission. I can't have that. I love that. Thanks so much, Lenny. Leah, Leah do you have yours? something? Yeah. Sure. Um, I think that I feel like there's like two things. One is like um, Lenny said, like, I think um, like eradicating the poverty and the instability that a lot of like the community uh, is struggling with. I think if everybody had like a stable house and somewhere to live and food to eat and the resources they needed and transportation and um, all of those things that uh, education could look really different and people's lives would be a lot different and free up a lot of the, um, their time and energy for to focus on the things that they want to focus on. Um, I think, and then I also think like I would like to depoliticize charters. I think um, it prevents a lot of people um, from supporting charters publicly because they feel like it's a political issue and they'll get uh, and that they, they can't be in support of charter if they're a certain political affiliation. Um, and I think uh, if and, and I think it's, you know, it's not true. Charters aren't a political issue. You know, charters mm -hmm. are an issue of equity and an issue of uh, educational justice and liberation and providing people what they need when they need it in the way that they need it. And that should never be a political thing. That should always just be the right thing to do. And it shouldn't matter what, what political party you're affiliated with. You should be free to support what you think is right. So that's what I would, and I think a lot of fun, more funding would come if people yeah. <laughs> didn't feel like that. Oh, I love that. Thanks so much, Leah. Bayon? I mean, I think I would eradicate systemic oppression and racism um, and make those whole who have been harmed by it. Um, I think that Mic is, drop. yeah, I think, I think that's, that's one of the really big things. Um, and I would also, really want to eradicate this opportunity and wealth gap that exists as well. Um, and really the opportunity gap because it takes away so much and makes such an upward uh, uphill battle for our community members and our scholars just about the fact that like they weren't taught to read the way they were supposed to be taught to read because someone didn't do their job. Um, you know, so. Well, I think I mean, obviously magic wands don't exist, but I, I, I'm inspired by the fact that you all 
aren't just waiting for a magic wand. You guys are you guys are being a magic wand to your community and you guys are putting in the work and it's not a simple, all right, it's all fixed. You guys are, you all are really putting in the work. So I really appreciate that. I've, I've always admired you all from afar, even though I haven't really gotten to know you all as well as I would like. But after this call, I'm, I'm even more blown away by your mission. I am more inspired to, uh, to do what I can to, to be a part of RBLA's mission from afar. And I think anyone that listened to this is going to be very uh, motivated as well by what you all are doing. It's a very special, unique mission. And I think it's something that a lot of people can, can and should get behind. Um, thank you so much. I've been truly elevated, inspired by everything that you've said. Um, in the show notes, you guys have, you all have mentioned some books. You all have mentioned some people. Um, we're going to include links to all those things. So for those listening, if you want to listen to um, one of the, or I guess, I guess you can listen to a book now, but if you want to read the book, for example, Cultivating the Genius of Black Children by Dr. Sullivan, we'll have that link in the show notes. If you want to learn more about anything that's said, check the show notes and we'll include everything after. But once again, thank you, RVLA. And uh, we'll catch everyone next time. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.